0: The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all in one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G I S T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following
1: podcast contains explicit language.
0: It's Tuesday, September 2nd, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the New York Times style section, The style section sometimes can be the the fabulous ghetto of the New York Times, but maybe a little less rigor, maybe a little bit. More verve, I'll give you more verve. They have news-ish items, so the topic was Hillary Clinton and the gay vote. She's not actually great on gay issues. Terry Gross pressed her, hey, when did you start becoming in favor of gay marriage? And there was a great non-answer going on there. She said, you know, I think it's a good decision for the states. And in Slate, Mark Joseph Stern actually pointed out that, oh, saying the states should have, uh, should be in charge of gay marriage. It's like Dick Cheney circa 2004. But what the uh, New York Times style section did was talk about why gay people, gay men, I didn't see too many lesbians quoted, gay men like Hillary. And here were some of the answers given. We get her like we get our moms, said Fred Saines, a spokesman for the Human Rights Campaign an advocacy group, we've seen the travails she's been through and the fact that she's not just a survivor, but a conqueror. Then they quoted the Democratic strategist Richard Sakuridis, who said, People see her as a survivor and someone who, despite her many, many gifts and blessings, survived some personal and political setbacks and persevered in the face of them. She's very appealing to gay Americans because it's a shared experience. All right, let me submit, we get her like we get our moms. If it wasn't people who were supporting her, that would be unbelievably problematic. That is such an insult. Why do you like her? She's like our moms. What about all the, you know, accomplishments and secretary of state things? Unless you're Madeline Albright's daughter, she's not like your mom. Right. And so then you get into this whole she's a survivor and we're survivors. You're lumping her in a category. You know, I don't know if this is everyone. It's certainly not everyone. Uh, The Times can quote whoever. They don't necessarily speak for the whole community. But when you lump her into a category as like a Lana Turner or a Cher or a Judy Garland. Well, here, I'll give you a quote. This is from Michael Bronski, who wrote Culture Clash, the making of gay culture. So having these women, these suffering women, who became gay icons, epitomized the idea that, quote, Suffering was the price of glamour, and the women stars of the 50s reflected the condition of many gay men. They suffered beautifully. Listen, far be it from me to tell one group of people whose experiences I can recognize but never fully process, far be it from me to tell you who to like and why to like them. But recognizing that she's suffered some... I will submit that that is perhaps not as solid a foundation as we might want from our ideal leaders. All right, I came out swinging there. Do or don't take offense, but don't take a nap. And we'll be talking about the science of napping coming up soon in the spiel, how not to be boring, a big lesson pertinent to this time of year. But first, the Queen's Gambit has been accepted. The Rui Lopez is in play quickly now to the chessboard. Going on now in St. Louis through September 7th, there's the Sinkfield Cup. The world's top player, Magnus Carlsen, is there. He's the defending champ. He faces most of the other top ten players in the world. St. Louis is home to the Chess Hall of Fame. This big, huge American tournament is taking place in St. Louis. And the cup is named Sinkfield thanks to the efforts of Rex Sinkfield, a St. Louis-based billionaire, philanthropist, chess nut, who was raised in the St. Vincent Orphanage in St. Louis. He graduated from university there. He made his fortune, became a philanthropist, a political donor, and the U.S.'s greatest force for chess. Since, well, here I asked Rex Sinkfield, why has chess receded in the American consciousness?
2: You know, back about 30 or 40 years ago, of course, there was the Fischer boom. And anyone who lived through it saw one of the most glorious eras of any competitive activity. The fischer Spassky match was the most watched competitive event in the history of the
0: world. Sinkfield has founded a congressional chess caucus and, of course, funds this tournament and the St. Louis Chess Club and Scholastic Center, which is great. It's all great if the chess is honest, if it's on the up-and-up, if it's an above-board board game. You know, if the only players getting rooked are the ones who leave their pawns exposed. Enter Ken Reagan. He uses technology and savvy as a sort of chess detective. Hello, Ken. Hello. I will tell uh, our audience that you're a computer science professor, you are an international chess master. Am I getting that right? Are you a master? That's right,
2: associate professor, and uh, I've had the title of international master for almost 35
0: years. Awesome. So how did you get on the cheating beat? Well, what happened was
2: I have commentary privileges on the European chess server, so I was making comments on the world championship match. And I was online when this accusing letter from challenger uh, Veselin Topolov's manager was released alleging too much statistical coincidence.
0: This was sometimes called toilet gate. This was, the it t-
2: was indeed. The, the allegation was that Vladimir Kramnik, the Russian, was getting help from a computer via internet cable to his toilet, which was the only portion of the playing area that was out of video surveillance.
0: So maybe, I mean, this is what the opponent was saying, Kramnik was taking too many bathroom breaks. He could have been consulting a computer. Now, at this point, was it unknown? to use a computer to cheat at chess? I mean, it was unknown at the World Championship. Was this the sort of thing that people said, well, that has never happened before? There had been whispers against uh, Veselon Topalov himself from a
2: tournament the year before, but it was not high on my consciousness that people would actually make the accusation statistical. Got it. this letter did.
0: Got it. So the letter said... This guy's moves are too close to the optimal strategy a computer would play. Am I getting that about right? He's
2: matching high 80%, 70%. And the letter didn't even say this, but conventional wisdom at the time was that humans matched computers found the same moves under 50%.
0: Okay, so this was far too high for a human to be doing by himself. Now, there's a couple of uh, keys or points to this, such as was he really playing 70%? And even if he was, what does that prove? So what did you weigh in with? This is the key point. I found that in the game that really hurt the
2: challenger the most, where he was winning brilliantly, then he was drawing, and finally he lost. I find that in the crucial second half of that game, Vladimir Kramnik indeed did match over 90%. And I get that reproducibly with two different chess programs. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason for it. Most of those positions had only one move to stay alive or later one move to keep your advantage. They were very clear-cut, narrow-path positions. And when the game is like that, then a strong human player and a computer are highly likely
0: to find the same move. Right. So from that came a couple of insights. And one was, I think most people uh, supported Kramnik. I mean, nothing was ever proved, right? It was a little bit of a disgrace on uh, Topolov. But you decided you were animated, am I right?
2: Well, yes, I was, I was very animated. I was going to go online on the last day of that match when they were having a playoff and lay out my conclusions which i'd reached during the week line by line on how this was trumped up how it was not it was an uh, illusion it was it was not a, a sufficiently scientific accusation to begin with all of that mm-hmm. but the buffalo area got hit by a gigantic ice storm that knocked out
0: power for a week yeah what are the chances of that oh wait a minute in buffalo <laughs> <laughs> in buffalo yes yeah, yeah pretty high but from that, is a new sideline launched for you? Or how? What what is that prompting you in terms of thinking about catching chess cheaters?
2: Then I was called into another cheating case. The first time a cheating case really involved a player in the world's top 100 where there was reason to believe uh, in guilt. And in fact, this is now a confessed case by his accomplice.
0: Okay, so how did he cheat?
2: Well, it is known that One of the accomplices in Paris, who was following the game, relayed moves via text message to the captain of the French Olympic team, who then found a way to communicate the move to his player, or perhaps the player got it directly. Mm -hmm. But one of the means was called the Flight of the Bumblebee, Le Vaux de Bourbon in French, where he would captain would mill around. There were eight chairs that were used as a code for the numbers 1 to 8, the letters A to H, giving the coordinates of a square. So if he wanted you to play the queen to G5, he would mill around and sit and then finally pause behind white on board 4 for G, mill around, then finally pause behind white on board 3 for 5.
0: Okay, so this flight of the bumblebee case. What do you uh, you come in and you, uh, how do you crack the case or attempt to? So the confession said we cheated on most of four games, and on the on the relevant moves in
2: those four games, I get a completely different readout from the players' other moves. I get what's called the distinguisher. Mm -hmm. I get that the confessed moves were of a gigantically higher quality and satisfied certain statistical tests for matching with, with a high deviation.
0: Okay, so you could isolate the cheating games. You could prove that he was just playing better playing too well and by certain specific measures
2: that are even apart from quality he he was imitating specific moves that were advocated by a computer program
0: so during the last Olympics, in fact, this happens all the time, a swimmer who is good, you know, Olympic level wins the gold and she makes this huge jump and the experts say, I don't know, we can't prove it, but without some sort of PED, we just don't see how the human body could make the jump. What about in chess? Do people sometimes, I mean, they, their level of play is rated and there's a very accurate number affixed to that, but at some points, does someone show up to the tournament and just got a lot better?
2: one of the things we're finding is that you know players below the top rank can come up with inspired games and in fact I lost myself to a very low ranked player who played a knight sacrifice I didn't see and then suddenly I saw my queen and rook getting forked and he beat me so things like that happen and one of the great american champions is Paul Morphy I mean he's a legend but one of the things my model does is rate the intrinsic quality of play Mm -hmm. and morphe's games for all their brilliance come in at a number under twenty four hundred however he came up with what we think are some really brilliant and insightful combinations Now, what we realize, though, is that there are some people, 2,300, you know, they they don't get the glory. But if you look at some of their games, there are parts of their games that are really brilliant, too. And they could be written up in newspapers.
0: Ken Reagan is a computer science professor with a background in complexity theory. Thanks so much, Ken.
2: Oh, thank you very much.
0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all in one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST at checkout. Some things to know about Squarespace it's simple it's easy. It's both simple and easy. You know, those aren't exactly the same things, right? Like certain things are simple puzzles. I've sometimes seen these puzzles about like there's an interlocking fish, but you have to figure out the mechanism to unlock the fish. So it would be a simple puzzle, but it wouldn't be easy. And there are some things that are really easy that aren't so simple. Turning on a computer, right? It's easy. You press a button, but when you really think about it, it's not that simple. I don't know how any of this leads you to Squarespace, but I do know that It does have beautiful design, drag-and-drop content. There are people in New York, Dublin, and Portland. I don't know if they know each other. I don't know if they have similar Christmas parties. But they're there for you to offer you live chat and email support. So if you decide to sign up for a year, it's $8 a month. It includes a free domain name. And so what you need to do is go to Squarespace, type in the offer code GIST, for 10% off your first purchase. And thank you to Squarespace for supporting the gist. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. Other than dress in layers, I would say the tried and true thing to say if you're a pretty bad local TV science correspondent is this. And remember to get plenty of sleep. That's it. Like dress in layers, plenty of sleep. You could get hired for the Ohio Valley News Leader. Sorry, Ohio Valley News Leader. But really... Not just sleep. Of course sleep is good. To be rested is better than not being rested. There's this other form of science they keep shoving down our throats. Or maybe they don't shove it down our throats. I just perceive it because I'm, you know, in need of a nap. And it's naps. I want to talk about naps. I want to talk about the science of naps. And I want to do it with the always invigorating and never enervating... Maria Konikova. Hello, Maria. Hi, Mike. So if you're a listener to The Gist, you know how we do it. Maria comes in, we talk about science, and then she issues a decree. We play the very scientifically sound game. Is that bullshit? Let's start with the personal. Are you a napper? No, Me neither. I'm not. Why aren't you a napper?
1: Because I find that I'm often more tired after a nap yeah. than I am before a nap. That's number one. Number two, it often takes me a long time to fall asleep. And so if I have, say, half an hour for a nap, by the time I'm actually asleep, I already have to wake up.
0: If you get any sort of decent napping in the three minutes coming out of the nap or the worst three minutes of your day, and then, of course, there's the, you know, your hair is all messed up. Maybe you sweated on the pillow. All right, that's maybe just a mic thing. (laughs) but it happens. Yeah, there's a lot. Like the whole, oh, a 20-minute nap. Yeah, and the 30 minutes before and the 20 minutes after. It's a commitment.
1: It definitely is a commitment. And we know that naps are theoretically good because Mm -hmm. theoretically more sleep is better. And yet, practically speaking, I think a lot of people have the same problem that I do, which is you really need to know how to time it so that you are woken up out of your nap at the right moment in your sleep cycle. Otherwise, it completely screws up your day and completely screws up your alertness. And that's very difficult for us to kind of self-administer.
0: Is it maybe the case, I just base this on the one person I know who really believed in this 20-minute power nap, my friend Ryan was also, like, just about the most competent person I know. So, like, he could kind of do anything correctly. And he's not the kind of guy who would sweat on his pillow. And I think he had a 4.0 in college and would wear very nice sweaters. So, like, is it the sort of thing that, I don't know, it sort of makes the rest of us feel guilty that we're not taking a power nap, but the kind of person the power nap works for is the CEO who's also, like, unbelievably competent in every other aspect of their life?
1: Your friend Ryan might actually just be incredibly good at... Relaxing his mind when he needs to. That's a skill. And that's something I think people who do nap regularly become better at napping. And if they kind of self-regulate and they try to wake up at different points, then maybe you'll actually come up with the correct nap time and the correct nap cycle for you. And then your body might start getting used to it. So I think your friend is just very good at organizing and at saying, now my mind needs to relax.
0: Exactly correct.
1: But you know what? There's stuff that works that doesn't actually require napping. For instance, if you do something called mindfulness meditation for mm-hmm. those 20 minutes, that can make you sharper and more alert for the rest of the day. And all that really requires is relaxing your mind and and doing that for, for a concerted period of time.
0: So given all... Of the downsides and the how long it takes to get a nap, and maybe mistiming our cycle, and our sleep cycles are different, and all that. Is there an optimal way to do it? Is there like sort of a best nap case scenario? Yeah, absolutely. If you
1: have to take a nap, I would say try to prepare for it by, if you can, about an hour ahead of time, you don't go outside. If you're sitting in an office, actually close your windows and try to make it as dark as possible. Of course, the problem with this is that your computer screen is also emitting the type of light that makes it difficult for our bodies to get ready for sleep. But do the best you can. So try to kind of prepare the environment and try to relax yourself ahead of time.
0: So instead of maybe reading computer, if you could read something on a printed text, that itself would have a benefit?
1: It would. It would. So really... Try to structure the activities in the day so that before you're taking a nap, you're not doing something like answering email Mm -hmm. where you have 50 million things going on in your mind and you're not actively, you know, browsing and trying to really have an active mind that's trying to get a lot of stuff done at once. And the other thing we can do is you're often sleepier after you eat. so. Uh, that's why after lunch naps are often such a popular thing. That's very bad for weight gain, but it's very—it's much better for sleep. So there's really, you know, you win some, you lose some. Yeah,
0: you put on the power pounds.
1: Yes. And yeah. then the, the final thing you can do is there are biometric devices that help you do some rough approximation of your sleep cycle. So uh-huh. then you'll learn how long your nap needs to be. In order for you to be well rested and then you set the alarm for that exact time, of course, then you need to fall asleep right when you get
0: the alarm going. That's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Wow, that seems like a lot of work. (laughs)
1: Optimal napping
0: is hard. I do perceive that when the nap evangelists try to sell it to you, they know that the uh, intended audience is worried that they're going to be seen as lazy. So they sell it to you using all these anti-lazy phrases. You're going to be more productive. You're going to be more alert. You're going to be your better self. People talk about creativity. What do we know about the benefits of a nap and when do those benefits kick in?
1: Well, you're only going to be more alert if you do all the things we've already talked about and if you wake up out of the right point in your sleep cycle. Perfect napping. Yes, perfect napping. But the creativity, there's actually some good work on that because we know that... In the moments between sleep and wakefulness, our mind can often make connections that it can't make when we're awake. So people often have epiphanies as they're falling asleep, yeah. and then unless they write them down, they're going to forget them. And the same thing when they're waking up. In those transitional states between wakefulness and sleep, our mind often comes up with all sorts of wacky ideas that are actually really, really good. Right. Like I had one. Exactly.
0: What if the car in the Dukes of Hazzard, instead of the General Lee, what if it was the General Lee? Like the adverb. I mean, it would change everything, but also it was a brilliant idea, and that's when I had it. Yeah, good
1: point. Yeah, exactly. So when you nap, you actually kind of expand that window of opportunity. So it might be a good idea if you're working on something very difficult and you need a breakthrough to take a nap to kind of let your mind— Renaming
0: TV cars. Exactly, exactly,
1: which is really, really important. Yeah. And going to sleep after you've learned something complicated will help your brain— Assimilate all of the information and learn it
0: better. So let's get to the decree. This is why people pay their money. <laughs> napping: the scientific benefits of napping. Are they bullshit? Most of them are bullshit.
1: Even though the benefits of sleep are not bullshit.
0: I agree with that. All right, as promised, the always energetic, never soporific Maria Konnikova. Thank you so much, Maria.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to go take a power nap now.
0: Yeah, I didn't want to say it, but I was.
1: Just a good old boy. Never no harm. Beats all you never saw been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. The the
0: And now the spiel so football season is almost upon us and you've probably been hearing the following football related sentiment. hey, Whatever you want to do, that's fine for you. But do I have to know about it? I mean, your lifestyle, whatever you call it, that's fine. But that's your business. I just don't want you to make it my business. Oh, oh, I see. You thought I was talking about Michael Sam and the popular plea to keep me uninformed about this player's quest to be the first openly gay player in the NFL. I wasn't talking about Michael Sam. No, I was talking about pleading about this thing that you need to keep on the down low. I was talking about your fantasy football team. Look, we, people, men, men, really men, we try hard not to be boring, right? We listen to music that isn't really that fun to listen to, like Grizzly Bear we take scotch-tasting courses. We watch Woody Allen movies made after 1989. We pretend Damien Hurst isn't just pulling a giant con job. We get tattoos, like intricate tattoos, barbed wire around the biceps. Oh, and we go to the gym to make sure those tattoos look barbed and not flaccid. So we put in all this effort not to be boring, and then what do we do? We go out and we ruin it all by talking about our fantasy football teams. Oh, wait till you hear my backfield. Wait for what? Until I actually bleed out? Wait for me to swallow my own tongue. No, but seriously, you got to hear about my receivers. I don't want to hear about your receivers. Even if you're talking about vintage stereo equipment, I don't want to hear about your receivers. Unless you're Patriots owner Robert Kraft, I don't want to hear about your receivers. Actually, even if you're Robert Kraft, we get it. Julian Edelman, sure-handed white guy, been done. I don't want to hear about your receivers. There are no circumstances that make me want to hear about your receivers. I have receivers. I have QBs. Baby got backfield. I have a defense, but there is no defense for babbling about my defense. I am not so boring as to waste your time and tell you all about these fake guys on my fake team. Let me tell you about my receivers is worse than let me tell you about the dream I had last night. So I was eating soup on a rabbit and then running back Eddie Lacey was available. no, no. A lot of comedians do a routine about listening to their ladies, blah, 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 when they come home from work. And Sheila said this to Steve, and Warren didn't even know that Cynthia was out on maternity leave. Yeah, listen, all those stories, certainly they could use a punch-up from Robert McKee, screenwriting guru, right? You need rising action in the first act and Warren says this thing to Steve and a Paul hangs over the whole office. Yeah, that'd all help. But Warren, Sheila, Steve, Cynthia, at least those are all real people. I don't think that Aaron Rodgers is a real person. I mean, he might be a real person. I have no evidence of it. It doesn't really matter if he's a real person. He's a collection of stats and he fuels the worst ongoing conversation in America today. You know how Herbalife used to have those buttons that said, lose weight now, ask me how? I want to print I just drafted third. It's an experience better not heard. Look, We're told that fantasy football isn't really about football, right? It's about bonding and friendship and keeping in touch with the guys you palled around with in the past. No, that's what playing football in your annual Thanksgiving game is, right? That's even what watching football at a bar or a stadium is about. At least then there is a shared tribalism. You paint your faces, you drink too many icy lights in the Heinz Field parking lot, and by the fourth quarter you forget the many reasons why Ben Roethlisberger is probably a terrible human being. It's called bonding. But 12 different guys rooting for 12 different players on 12 different teams. You need your face paint as applied by George Surratt. Fantasy football isn't a rich tapestry of sport. It's a messy splotch. I play fantasy football. I do. I've been playing it since I was 10. And since I was 12, I've stopped talking about it. I want people to say of me... He had interesting opinions about handguns and the Brady Bill. Not, he went on and on about Tom Brady in the shotgun during the two-minute drill. Say... Oh, he knows stuff about band leader Duke Ellington, not Falcons running back Andre Ellington. And speaking of Falcons or Eagles, I also want it known that I know about Finches and Thrushes and not just goal line touches. Let it be said that on a variety of topics, I've shown proficiency. And I'm glad if that doesn't include the matter of red zone efficiency. Look, I play fantasy football. I just don't talk about fantasy football. We're told that fantasy football keeps us in touch with friends. It doesn't. It keeps us in touch with our friends' opinions about Rob Gronkowski. Hey, do you ever talk to Mercer anymore? I do, I do. I play fantasy football with Mercer. Ah, oh, how's he doing? Job, kids? Maybe. The guy drafted Roy Hallou is the number one back. <laughs> I don't know my friends' kids' names. I don't know what my friends do for a living. I mean, not really. Not what kind of law. I do know if they want Graham for Gronk. Yeah, I think it's three kids. Maybe it's two. Who knows? What I do know is the guy's carrying an extra kicker. I mean, can you believe that? And here's the kicker. Football, the game of football, actual football, it's an exciting but dangerous game. Yet football itself is getting more and more beholden to fantasy football. And that's fine. It's fun for you, the player. Just don't talk about it. Don't let me know to thine closet fantasy football freak treated how an old lady should treat knitting or how a young lady should treat owning multiple cats it's fine it's cute just don't assume the world wants to know lest the fantasy come crumbling down and all you're left with is face paint in the pointilless style and a backfield consisting of roy hallou and whoever the hell is going to lead the titans and carries And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is in charge of producing Slate Podcast. She also plays in a fantasy freeform radio league. Vince Gelsa in the first round. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcast, he's the inventor of Fantasy Fruit traded a melon for a parsimon in a keeper league. You could listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We're also on Yo. You go to the app Yo, you download it, you subscribe to podcast. As soon as our podcast is ready to go, it will Yo. Same kind of similar thing can be found by going to slate.com slash just email. Then instead of the one word Yo, you get a whole email. You click on the email, you hear the show. I do want to mention there's a video on our site, also on our Facebook page, the site being Slate.com slash TheGist, the Facebook page being Facebook.com slash SlateGist, a video of the song Fancy by Iggy Azalea. As you know, I don't think she's really that fancy, but she gets fancy when the song is performed by Gilbert Gottfried. It's a lot of fun. It's a funny video. It's always fancy when Gilbert Gottfried does it. Our Twitter feed is SlateGist. You can email the Gist at Slate.com. So I was in a fantasy politeness league, PPR, points per refinement, holding the door when early first round. Then it came back with firm handshake and thank you notes in the 8-9 pick. Last pick of the draft with the pleasure was all mine still on the board. Guess what went? It was thanks for listening.